Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey everybody, Holden here. I wanted to just briefly mention before we start today's episode that it was brought to you by Jeffrey Leonard Greek. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for your patronage. Uh, it's an episode on Philip K. Dick, and uh, we appreciate the episode request. It was a very interesting, fascinating subject to study for this week. And also, uh, here is your plug, Jeffrey. This one's hilarious. It's the Too Lazy to Make a Podcast podcast, old school podcasting for our troubled times, available every other Tuesday or every fifth Tuesday, depending on current parole conditions, live from a street corner somewhere. Check the scratchings on the wall of your friendly neighborhood gas station bathroom for local times or not. I mean, fuck it. We're probably all living in ancient Rome or something anyway. Am I right? <laughs> I appreciated that. Thank you, Jeffrey, and uh, enjoy the show. Greetings, Earth Visitor! It is I, your wondrous weaver of science tales, Jake Young! And it is I, your trippy as fuck, explorer through the psychedelic cosmos, Holden McNeely. Gadzooks, put down those amphetamines! Talk about <laughs> spaceships and death rays! And we're here to talk to you about when sci-fi went from being like, Jake, to being like what I just did. <laughs> what? <laughs> from going from like, oh, aliens, what do the other planets hold to a f complete, like, what does what God taste like? <laughs> also, I'm a wizard this week, and Jared's, a, uh, or Jake, rather, is a bruiser. Holden McNeely, how are you? I'll tell you how I am. Um, my brain is a pile of mush after doing this topic. I, I can't even think straight. I'm referring to myself in the third person, Jake, and I just called you Jared. I'm so confused right now. Here's the thing. Maybe, <laughs> just maybe, doing a single episode on an author that maybe wrote, oh, I don't know, 121 short stories and like a bajillion <laughs> novels was a bad idea. Look, we're going to cover his life. We're going to cover, we're going to, we're going to briefly cover the books, but I'll have you know this right now. I could easily see us coming back and doing a single episode on just, you know, uh, do androids dream of electric sleep or Ubik <laughs> or I don't even know what I'm saying. Jake, I'm having problems. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Did I just say sleep? Yeah. I'm about to shit my ass right now. <laughs> this is just a fucking mind fuck and a half. I feel like I, I feel like 
I need to go into a sensory deprivation tank mm -hmm. and just, you know, for like a month after covering this man's life. He's prolific. He's he's a genius, and at the same time, he's a complete psycho. I don't even I don't know what to say. He's deeply religious, and yet he's sort of you know calls the Bible the greatest work of fiction ever. He's um, he, you know, and then I'm like, oh, this would be a great idea, Jake. This mm -hmm. would be a great idea. I'll call Henry. Henry, he's read every Philip K. Dick book. Oh, great! It'll be great. To, I'll just talk to him about it. Make sure that I'm covering this the right way. I've never been more confused after a conversation with a human being. Now, did you get the CBD Henry. contact high through the phone? Line. <laughs> exactly. Not that CBD gets you high. It's more of like an even keel thing. It's lovely. Anyway, dude, it was in. Sane, just everything to cover here. I remember I was like halfway through doing research and I hit up Henry and I'm just like, um, hey, I think I need to talk to you. I just want to make sure I'm covering the right books, the right things. And he's just like, it's all about Valis. We'll talk. And I'm oh, like, what the fuck no. is Valis? And I like started learning about Valis and I'm just, I just. Hold on, I have it in my notes. I know what Valis oh, is. I know what Valis is now. Vast active living intelligence system. Yeah, I know what Valis is now, Jake. I sat in a, in a, in a bunker. Luckily, we got that nor'easter, which was the perfect excuse to. Lose my mind to to uh, Philip K. Dick. Have we even said the man's name yet? Briefly. Philip, Philip K. Dick. You have to click the episode title. They're <laughs> fine. This so, this sci-fi author, um, uh, he, it, I think this is like essentially, I mean, not just him. There were other authors at, at around the same time. But these really, these really were the trailblazers that took sci-fi to a completely different place entirely. You were about to say, Jake? Uh nothing <laughs> <laughs> jake philip k dick was born this is one of the just immediately we get this weird almost seemingly um uh um backstory to what would seem like a crazy sci-fi plot right mm -hmm. this man philip k dick born december 16th 1928 in chicago six weeks prematurely uh, with his twin sister. Now, 1928 was a good time for to be a six-week <laughs> premature baby, right? Medical <laughs> science was totally ready for that Fast shit. Fast times with being prematurely born, uh, born back here in the hospital of 1928. Congratulations, you lived. You're one out of maybe 100 <laughs> babies who lived from being born prematurely. And yes, it was a very rough time for that to happen. And of course, uh, Jane Charlotte Dick um, did die uh and uh, Philip K. Dick survived, and and so this immediate moment in Philip K. Dick's life would go on to pervade throughout all of his, throughout his work. Um, the the phantom twin theme would, is something that would come up again and again. The idea of like your sort of your other that exists in a different place um, it just immediately was an influence on his life. Uh, his father worked for the United States of uh, Agriculture. They moved to the San Francisco Bay Area for a little bit, um, uh, immediately from Chicago when he was very young. But then divorce put Philip K. Dick with his mother in Washington, D.C. Uh, there he attended John Eaton Elementary School uh, for a brief period of time. Then they returned to Charlotte, uh, I'm sorry, to California in 1938 when he started to get, uh, and that's when he started to get very interested in sci-fi. His first sci-fi magazine, Stirring Science Stories, was he was 12 years old and it was 1940. I feel like we've talked about these um, old sci-fi mags multiple times covering other subjects. These were always pervasive and galaxy know, science fiction, amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing stories. Mm -hmm. uh, the it, this was kind of the in between phase between like the pulp. Where yeah, we're in, I think we're in the pulp era when Philip K. Dick yes. is writing. But um, also at this time, so he was a sickly child, 
Uh, he has this like weird thing with his sister that uh, you know it's it's this this missing piece. He says he resented his mother for like he's there's like a million different theories. He spends his entire life agonizing over this. And by the time he's six years old, he's already seeing a psychiatrist. Mm. And his uh, and like his father remarries, and like they have twins of their own, and like they've been repl- so he feels replaced. He's genuinely fucked up. The thing that like strikes me the most about Philip K. Dick's life is just how much fucking bullshit the post depression generation can go through yes. in a single life. Yeah, so many deaths, so much separation, so much so much traveling, so much yeah. being uprooted and just and moving all over the country. Chicago to San Francisco to DC and then back to California. Yeah. Good lord. And pills, pills, pills the whole way through. Pop them, pop them if you got them, got them. And boy, did these people have them. Also This upset child short is sure could use some lithiation. <laughs> yeah, is this when um that sort of medication was just starting to be more pervasive. Uh, I feel like, in a way, with like the, the medical science was really starting to pill the pill the people up in a in a in a larger scale fashion. Well, the like uh, we're in a like post uh, Freud post Jungian world, so yes. like therapy and psychiatry are kind of at they're blossoming, they're booming industries. This is also around the same time when like well, they'll put an ice pick up your nose if you're getting too mouthy. Oh, so like there you go. So it's kind of this weird wild west gold rush. What age do you think I would have been a lobotomized by? Oh, oh, like because you you just assured that it would happen. <laughs> oh, for sure. Me yeah. personally, absolutely. <laughs> what age? Come on, let's talk numbers. Uh, I'm thinking twelve. Oh, no, 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 no. You get them early. Yeah, you get them early. You Eight. Count, yeah. Uh, so, this anyways, boy has ghosts in his brain. <laughs> So anyways, uh, you know, talking about stirring science fiction or stirring science stories like the the magazine that he was reading, it's also very important to note that around this time, you know, or back in the day, science fiction was in no way taken seriously as a form of literature. It was there's literature, there's like works of fiction, and then there's sci-fi. It's like a a complete separate thing. Sci-fi is more relegated to the level of, you know, even today comic books are taken more seriously, but back in the day it was more regular back to you know the, com- the comic books as we knew them through like the 90s and it stuff. was like on a level of re- respectability below shirtless guy punching an alligator on the cover yes. like pulp novels absolutely so he's getting into this stuff he attends berkeley high school and um actually uh, graduated with a f- fellow sci-fi author ursula k Le Guin. Um, he ends up attending the University of California, Berkeley. That's from September to November 1949. Um, and he graduates, uh, or he gets, uh, is granted an honorable dismissal in January 1950. School just wasn't for him. Uh, he said, uh, he was said to have dropped out due to anxiety issues. So, of course, he's dealing with intense anxiety at this point, um, as well as a dislike for the mandatory ROTC training, which is weird that Berkeley had that. It's kind of fascinating. Such a different time, you know? Well, at this stage, he's in Berkeley, um, and uh, he dropped out, and apparently, according to... I don't quite understand how this works, but he had a mysterious first wife. Yeah, he he seems to have... before Jeanette, I, Jeanette, like there was a pregnancy scare or something happened, but he yeah. has he at some point along the way he has a mysterious first wife. I can't find anything about her. Uh, he then has a second wife named Cleo, 
uh, because he was working at the record shop because, you know, this is the beginning of like yes. rock and roll. He's kind of a cool, kind of a hip dude in that sense, working at the record store. Um, he also had a college radio show. Uh, it was a classic music program. It was on KSMO radio in 1947. Um, I think he was kind of a he was like as hip as a dude like him could be, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Um, so, so, uh, and, and around this time he starts to kind of form some early versions of how, what, how he sees, you know, uh, the world, religion, uh, things like that, because he's taking classes all over the place. He never declares a major. He doesn't really seem to have necessarily nailed down exactly what he wants to do with his life. He's taking history, psychology, philosophy, and zoology, even classes. I don't even know how you do that in a series of a few months, but whatever. Um, so he, uh. He has his early philosophy is essentially that uh, God is bigger than all of us, and it's bigger than the whole universe. God is not some person or some being that you'll ever know. It's like we're just like a speck in in um, in God's like whole world. He, he declares himself an a cosmic penentheist. Um, and essentially that, that is, that is what that means from, from what I could gather. So he's starting to, he's starting to really, uh, find some, some of this sort of, uh, divine thinking, feeling, um, understanding that, uh, he will become, um, big on later. So we'll get into that later. But, uh, so I was like, my eyes are crossed, Jake. I don't know if you can tell, but my eyes literally crossed uh, over doing the his research. His early for pushes for, uh, being a writer is not going well. Uh, Tessa mm-hmm. describes uh, coming home one day with him and seeing at the front door 17 rejected manuscripts lying at their door. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a friend, uh, this is a friend of his, uh, reports on an incident where they were so broke that at one point, uh, when they realized there was no food in the house, Philip K. Dick went to the store and came back with a bag of happy dog dog food. <laughs> oh my God. Just so they had something to eat. Um, they began using a uh, system to track which publications rejected which stories so that they wouldn't submit the same one <laughs> Resend twice. Resend them over and over again. And but, are these all the science fiction magazines, I'm assuming, that he's yeah. sending these to? Uh, but eventually he does start breaking through. Uh, one of his first stories published was one I read for this, uh, for this episode called Beyond Lies the Wub. Mm. And that is actually a brilliant little short story and kind of amazing that it's his first work. Uh, it involves... and a telepathic space pig and raises issues of Jungian archetypes and identity. Oh, wow. Yeah, good for him. His first story is published in 1951. Um, it was published in Planet Stories. Are you about to talk about the same story? <laughs> I think so. But I just wanted to yeah. say what magazines, if and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Um, and uh, his debut novel is not too long after that, 1955, The uh, Solar Lottery. Um, and it was actually an ace doubler. Uh, I thought this was fascinating. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Cause first of all, cook a fucking crossover. It was, so there were these books called ace doublers. Ace was the public publication company, uh, the publisher rather. And they would do these, um, like two for novels, but they were published in a weird way. They were published like back to back and in, and in reverse. Um, it's kind of hard to say, just like look up, um, look up, uh, either ace doubler or, um, 
if you want to look at Tet Besh binding format, Tet Besh means head to toe because they were this particular one is a collector's item because it was it was head to toe meaning one novel was uh, one way and the other novel would be upside down in relation to it and also they shared the same um, they shared the same uh, back backing uh with with the covers on the outside it's like hard to explain but if you no, saw a picture it's of it like you'd a two in one you flip it upside down and it's a new book yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, amazing and uh he shared that ace doubler with uh lee brackett who of course wrote empire strikes back uh, the oh. original original screenplay that uh, is arguably has you know not much in the final form but either way lee brackett we covered the shit out of lee brackett and talked about all about her stuff in the uh, empire strikes back episode so check that out um so while he's oh wait i'm sorry uh, so while he's publishing mm-hmm. these early stories he's still living in berkeley and uh wouldn't you know it uh they're in the middle of the fucking red scare yeah. and like the uh house of Amer- un-american activities uh so the fbi is actually visiting his house because his wife uh cleo is active in the student like uh student activism now, it said uh, in my thing that uh, they end up befriending an FBI agent. Do you have much more on that? Uh, basically. <laughs> I was like, oh, what the fuck are you talking about? Sometimes they'll summarize things. You'd just be like, what? <laughs> I don't have the guy's name. Uh, this was, I uh, I was watching the very shoddily French, shoddily slapped together French produced documentary, The Penultimate Truth about Philip K. Dick. And they describe how one of the uh, FBI agents that was continually monitoring them uh Again, because it was Berkeley in the 60s and the 50s and 60s and everyone communist was scary uh, that like he eventually taught Philip how to drive because they became (laughs) so familiar. And Philip was so anxious that he needed just like a stern figure. And it also his interactions with the FBI and realizing that like they were omnipresent, but still human uh, really influences the way that uh, kind of the um, Kafka-esque ways that giant conspiracies and corporations and government entities are still, like, humorously populated by these just, like, workaday schlubs. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. So, uh... Scullies and molders, if you will. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Philip K. Dick and his wife uh, moved to a new apartment, and uh, one day his neighbor kind of uh, rolls in and says, like, hey, I hear there's, like, a writer who moved in. How you doing? Uh, her name was Anne. And within a few months, uh, Cleo and him were divorced, and now Anne was his wife. Yeah, uh, he gets married a lot in this story, so yeah. buckle up for that. Uh, I loved his description of his uh, poverty in the 1950s, which is, we couldn't even pay the late fees on a library book. Uh, and, um, you know, during this time, too, this is his big... The 1950s marked his big uh, effort to try to be a mainstream literary novelist. Uh, Like I was describing before, there was a very big difference between sci-fi. Because nowadays, you know, you take something like Dune or, um, you know, Do Androids Dream of Electric uh, Sheep or anything like that, you know. And uh, you put that up there with any, you know, any great work of fiction. But back in the day, you know, there was a a giant distinction. And so he really fought hard uh, until um, he came to find out that, like, I think his publication company got back to him or his publisher got back to him and was like, yeah, we can't sell any of these. There was only one book published in his lifetime that was um, 
an actual work of uh, kind of non-sci-fi, we'll just call it. And that was Confessions of a Crap Artist, mm-hmm. which chronicles a bitter and complex marital conflict in ni- the 1950s suburban California. But even this, it switches perspectives from characters uh, all over the place. Not just that, it goes from first person to third person. It's all, it's it's very, you know, it's very experimental. It's 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 very wild sounding. But yeah, he, um, it, this was a Scott Meredith uh, literary agency was 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 uh, rather his agency and this is uh in in uh 1963 with them they returned all of his unsold mainstream novels so he had he had several he was trying to pitch well his life at the time uh so now he's like kind of in marin county he's in like a suburban home uh he has his new wife and uh i think a, a daughter from a previous marriage maybe two i'm blurry on that uh and he is having uh he his his life is uh, kind of dealing with manuscripts and sending stuff to publishers, helping his wife with her new jewelry business, which uh, Anne's business, I think, was still going uh, up until uh, like the 2000s. So like good for her. Mm-hmm. Um, popping amphetamines throughout the night to crank out books and yes. uh, succumbing to various manic depressive and paranoic episodes that led to horrifying screaming fights in which the two <laughs> continually threatened to kill each other. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, and if you look at his writing at the time, it's, it's, you know, uh, Confessions of a Crap Artist is literally about how suburbia is bullshit and the character that's supposed to represent his, like, loving wife is just, like, fucked up and horrible. Mm. Um, so things aren't going great. Things aren't going phenomenal, but... The man is working on a book that's actually going to at least put him on the map to a certain degree at that time period. That book would come to be called The Man in the High Castle. This uh, you might recognize uh, if you're not already familiar with Philip K. Dick's work. You would recognize this possibly from the Amazon TV series that Mm -hmm. has come out. And this is actually the first work we're going to talk about that inspired something that's on television (laughs) that is loosely adapted from the original work and not necessarily the best representation of the actual work. That is going to be a through line that we're going to be talking about throughout this uh, throughout this discussion. But uh, it's an alternate history in which Roosevelt is assassinated, leaving to uh, leading to the victory of. Germany and Japan in World War II and now they're the competing superpowers you've got Japan has the Pacific States of America the Nazis occupy uh, the eastern U.S. and um, this was actually inspired by a book called Bring the Jubilee by Ward Moore which is an alternate history where the Confederates won the Battle of Gettysburg uh, referred to um, and, and they refer to that that battle as the War of Southern Independence in that book. Also, though, it's heavily inspired by the I Ching. And this is, again, we're getting into um, sort of more metaphysical, spiritual um, elements pervading his work. And, inf- and actually, in this case, informing his work. Uh, the I Ching, or the Book of Changes... Um, is an ancient Chinese divination text. It's the oldest of the Chinese classics. They use a type of divination called claromancy, in which uh, produces apparently random numbers. Six numbers between six and nine are turned into a hexagram, which can then be looked up in the I Ching book and arranged in an order known as the King Wen sequence. And uh, the characters in the book use the I Ching, but apparently Philip K. Dick also in real life used the I Ching to work out plot points in the book. 
So he's actually using this sort of way to almost like fortune tell his own book into um, coming to life, which is kind of which is kind of amazing. There, and I just like, uh, but this is also Philip K. Dick's like kind of like whimsical, kind of humorous side to it. It's, uh, throughout the book, also characters are consulting a historical uh, fiction book that yes. humor that like, ooh, wouldn't it be crazy if the Allies won World right. War II? The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. And in, in, in this book, Roosevelt... A book within a book about actual history. Roosevelt survives the assassination attempt but does not go for re-election, leading to an alternate, alternate, alternate timeline of events still yet from Man in the High Castle. This book does very well. Wins the Hugo Award. Um, which is uh, the literary award given annually. Have we talked about the Hugo Award on this show? I was trying to figure out because I did a little bit of brief digging into the Hugo Award, and I was like, "It's named we- after some guy named Hugo who owned most of the big popular, who published most of the big popular sci-fi magazine." Founder of Amazing Stories yeah. is the biggest one. Hugo Gernsback. Uh, it was first given in 1953 at the 11th World Science Fiction Convention. They're overseen by the World Science Fiction Society. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so he's starting to get some accolades. And I think this this is the first thing that really puts him really on the map, at least in the sci-fi world. That's, see, that's the rub. Is that is the rub. Being on the map in the sci-fi world still doesn't pay the fucking bills. Not at all. I mean, th- you know, this is one of those stories for sure. It's kind of like back in high school when um, uh, I, I, I found myself really laughing at the concept of becoming a scientist because every single scientist we studied in high school was laughed at their entire career <laughs> until literally like four days after they died and then all the scientists went, you know what? I think actually Roger had something with that uh, formula about mass. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh, we should give him a million dollars. Oh, he's dead oh we laughed at him his entire life and now he's fucking dead oh okay so i was like maybe i'll try something else it's funny how in the history of scientists it's either like you go the tesla route and like people make fun of your dumb idiot accent or you go like the copernicus route and the pope like threatens to rip your balls out. yeah i'm gonna get at those balls copernicus if you want to be like a good ass scientist there's no way i you son of a bitch a heliocentric my ass i kick a u.s <laughs> No good way to do it. (laughs) Um, The next important work of his that comes after that, which is a work. There's so many books on my reading list now, Jake, by the way. There's so many. The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Mm, this is when he's getting like full yes. oopy goopy. This is getting this when he's getting real. Like immediately, he's getting wild. Around they, this time, he had started taking his uh, family uh, to Episcopalian church, <laughs> and, and 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 around this time, or, or, or about this book, they called it like the ultimate like psychedelic novel. He's not experimenting with LSD at this point yet. No, he's, he's not, just popping speed like they were t- fucking Tic Tacs. <laughs> He's uh yeah, he's not even, you know, he's tapping into something um uh without even really, you know, getting the effects of that sweet sweet acid that's starting to hit the scene. All the guys and all the gals are getting into it. This is very important this this work because it infuses multiple layers of sci-fi that he's kind of been working with. Planetary colonization, reality and unreality, bionic bar- body parts among many many others. He's it's also obviously got like a religious influence in it. Three stigmata, of course. Um, the idea of this like nefarious, like the this image of God as not a like benevolent force, but like this all-consuming, almost viral concept that manifests itself in stigmata 
in victims as it grows in power, but one that doesn't necessarily believe in good or could very well be evil. Yes. Dick refers to it as a study of absolute evil. The statement is, uh, for me, my credo. Here, I'll do. The statement is, for me, my credo, not so much in God, either a good God or a bad God or both, but in ourselves. I mean, after all, you have to consider we're only made out of dust. That's admittedly not much to go on, and we shouldn't forget that. But even considering, I mean, it's a sort of bad beginning. We're not doing too bad. So, personally, I have faith that even in this lousy situation we're faced with, we can make it. You get me? He talks a lot about, I've heard him in other speeches and things talking about how, you know, we came from irrationality into rationality. We, we sort of, the world started off completely irrational and it slowly became more and more rational until we find ourselves here. I know that's definitely a concept uh, that he's worked with. Either way, I guess we're starting to tap into, you know, I was thinking this whole week, like, how do I best describe his work? in terms of what set him apart from everyone else and made him so damn special. And I still don't know if I can quite um, nail that down, other than his, I feel like he's working with five layers at all times in his work. I feel like there are just so many different, so many different layers. It's it's spirituality, um, wild sci-fi concepts, uh, philosophy, um, and then, and then just the basic, um, human struggle, just to name a few that are all sort of happening at once in his work that make his, his work so profoundly, um, uh, so profound, we'll say, and so disturbing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause I mean, you know, I didn't grow up reading his stuff. I grew up enjoying stuff based on his stuff. Yeah. But, uh, reading about his life and reading and, you know, uh, reading interviews with the people that knew him best, uh, he reads as like it's kind of a familiar uh, uh, feeling. I don't know if you've ever had like any sort of mental health issues. I don't know if you've ever like kind of had mental health issues while experimenting with drugs. Mm, but mm-hmm. you know this manic energy and this convolution of all ideas at once and every event in your life gaining like you know you form this like meta narrative and a philosophy. Uh, and so like, he's this guy that's very volatile, very erratic, uh, a little bit narcissistic, like all of his, uh, all of his, all of his friends, his family talked about him as he's like very charming and then like can become cold and distant. Uh, or I remember one, um, one guy, the guy that put him up in Vancouver, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He talked about how it was hard to have an actual discussion with him that he would. And I've kind of known people like this in the past too. Like you couldn't just talk to him about ideas. It would always become some kind of like almost competition or he'd sort of take over the discussion and just kind of. That reminds me, Holden. The thing about the mind (laughs) is that it is above. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. It, It was, it was hard to share in a space of ideas with him from from um, the way that man was describing it, almost in like a semi-competitive way as well as a sort of just so far up his own ass kind of way, like you said with the narcissism, uh, which I could understand. I mean, he seems to have a very brilliant mind. You know, it's so funny too. I feel like so much of it is um, sci-fi is viewed as schlock at this mm-hmm. point. And at the same time, this man is viewed as quite brilliant by many people. 
Um, so he's both like he's both like a, a schlock peddler and a brilliant genius all at the same time, you know. And I think that that's probably still not a had Bradbury. To... He's still not an Asimov. He's uh-huh. still like he's still even within his own world. He's kind of just an also ran. Uh huh. Um, you know, he's not making money uh, because it's const- until later. Yeah. I mean, did he really become appreciated? He- by far like the scientists i was just making fun of uh was he more appreciated uh years and years later he became like way cooler with uh within kind of general he died a few months before blade runner came out okay yeah that's right uh having looked at daily spoiler alert jeez jake we haven't gotten to the end of the episode yeah we got another like half an hour or so um <laughs> And even then, Blade Runner took a while to become popular on top of that. Yeah, yeah. It came out in the best year of movies, like best summer of movies ever. So. Um, the I the the fact is, is that he did, though, have a lot of like uh, within the sci fi community. He was like the stoner kind of like Berkeley hippie guy because uh-huh. he did talk because drugs factored into his stories a lot. Uh, and, you know, altered perceptions and all those fun twists where, like, you know, his core idea where a hapless everyman uh, has their world completely flipped upside down. And it turns out that there was just all these machinations happening p- for their benefit at, mm-hmm. at a certain point is a very appealing story. And I feel like we all have that, like, paranoid idea every once in a while. Like, um, I remember after I saw The Matrix the first time, I was like, oh, man, fucking if I was in The Matrix making a movie about the matrix would totally be a fucking matrix movie. I'm on to your robots. <laughs> I also, also did the same thing in the Truman show. <laughs> also, um, I thought I was like, uh, I used to be in black and white and then I turned it to color. Like that one movie whose name I can even remember. Oh, Pleasantville. Yeah. Like Pleasantville. <laughs> <laughs> you lost your virginity. <laughs> yes. I lost my, I used to see myself in black and white. Um, that's why I wanted to be the next Charlie Chaplin in 2002. That's which is very weird. weird. Uh, another thing that Henry was telling me that I thought was kind of fascinating, again, this sort of dichotomy of, of who Philip K. Dick was in comparison of like being a, having a career in sci-fi, he was kind of a big guy. Like, he could beat your ass, you know? Mm-hmm. He was like, he, you know, and he would fight, and he would do stuff like that. He did, he kind of, which really set him apart from so many other sci-fi authors. Like, he's like this big lumbering dude. He's not this little quiet pipsqueak guy no um and or, or like an any version of like a nerd as we have come to know it and i think that also really set him apart from the rest of his, uh the, the community of sci-fi authors as well as you know just in the public eye he kind of has like a scraggly dan Harmon air about him if you look uh-huh. at photos or watch interviews mm-hmm. with him for sure. Um, so so now we get to do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Is it that? is now 1968. I'm okay. sorry if you asked because I was literally uh, about by, to say that. By this point, uh, he had his wife committed. Uh, she then got out of therapy <laughs> and he ran away from home when she came to get him back. Uh, he pulled a gun on her. Uh, so she left with the kids. Uh, he had a fourth wife. We're up to wife number four. Uh, Nancy, who was a 21-year-old schizophrenic, mm. uh, she got pregnant. Um, he befriended Bishop Jim Pike, who was then kicked Everybody out of Everybody loves Bishop Pike. Uh, he was kicked out of the Episcopalian <laughs> Church for heresy. <laughs> uh, kicked out for heresy. Uh, Nancy leaves him. <laughs> it's so hard to keep track of okay. Philip K. Dick's life in terms of both books and wives <laughs> at the He's same time. A prolific... <laughs> Wifer. A prolific... <laughs> Husbander, serial husbandist. Um, so 
do Andrew's Dream of Lecture Sheet. Maybe his most well-known work to you if you're not super familiar with Philip K. Dick. I think it's, it's if you're a fan of Blade Runner, you like go through, you either look at the movie poster or you see, I don't know if it's in the opening titles, but you're like, I'm seeing the movie Blade Runner. Yeah. And you're just like, fuck yeah, there's going to be blades and, <laughs> and chasing running, and running and, and i love running man cyber sushi bullshit wait does running man come out at this point no probably not that's stephen king yeah so i know it's, uh maybe anyway uh there's all this shit going down it's slick it's fucking badass and as always based on the book do androids dream of electric sheep <laughs> which his his he has a way with titles he really does oh yeah um, they're kind of awesome and at the same time kind of cumbersome. Like, we'll remember it for you wholesale. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is what uh, Total Recall is based off of. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, 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 oh, what I'm trying to say, it's like finding title. out. Die, uh, wait, Die Hard is actually based on a book. It's like finding <laughs> out that, uh, let's say, Jurassic Park. It's, that was also based I'm on. Kidding. Uh, it's like finding out Back to the Future was based on a book called like Professor Glibity's Spring of Tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're just like, wait, wait, what? But Blades and no, wait, Back to the Future is too lame. I needed to find a cooler movie. Um, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, Pulp Fiction was based on Doctor Glibity's Spring of Tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, so it's set in, of course, a post-apocalypse in San Francisco. Come on, people, you know this one. Nuclear war happened, wiped out San Francisco. Follows Rick Deckard, a bounty hunter who is tasked with t- retiring, quote unquote, i.e., killing six escaped Nexus Six model androids. While secondary plot follows John Isidore, a man of subpar IQ who aids the fut- fugitive androids. This, of course. Blade Runner, and it's, um, does this novel, how does, do you, did you know, like, how well are these books doing in the time of their release? He is still, he is still poor, <laughs> he is still reliant on his mother to pay his rent, mm-hmm. he is not doing well financially, uh, and again, it's, it's this undercurrent of sci-fi nerds who had, like, the imagination and drive to kind of, like, recognize his stuff after the fact, um, that like he was like an under you know he 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 was a sleeper hit mm-hmm. so it's not like you know uh his stuff was getting play in france i don't know at this point but for some reason the french really loved him and the french are like kind of the at the front of his push towards like canonical sci-fi genius ah um but uh i mean uh ridley scott says he'd never read the book before <laughs> like he was just working with adapted screenplays and working off of those that makes sense that um, makes a lot of sense and, and this is this is something that I mean I guess we can we'll bring this up now. We were, I, I wanted to mention it as kind of an ongoing theme that that you know and again I feel like I'm going to mention Henry a lot during this episode because I I did con- converse with him to try to and really you didn't record it for a bonus and I episode. didn't but I will eventually I will eventually and he's working on his own angle as well for some future LPN uh, episode stu- uh, or shows and everything so he's also really in really deep with this. And he talked about how, you know, all of the films and television and everything uh, that was adapted from Philip K. Dick's work, they're all just sort of mining his work for hip, cool, little, you know, sci-fi concepts that they can you know, make into a cool action movie or whatever. But nothing really out there quite uh, gets gets anywhere close to representing 
what his work was all about, really, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. At least if you ask a giant Philip K. Dick fan that has read all of his work and, you know, has seen all of those movies, uh, they'd probably say to you the same thing. And uh, I think that's really true. You had me pull up this B- Blade Runner clip. Um, should we put, do you want to do? Yeah, I guess along the ways you're talking about, like, you know, when you think of sci-fi, when you think of, like, grand ideas, you think of Philip K. Dick, and, you know, you think of, like, great lines like this. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Classic, classic, classic <laughs> lines. Ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Such emotion. I watched sea beams oh. glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. Beautiful. <laughs> All those moments so will be lost in time, like tears mm-hmm. in rain. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, Philip K. Dick didn't write a single word of that. That was <laughs> Rucker Howard just improvising off the dome, filling his performance with sci-fi ghibli gook, because none of that shit mattered. <laughs> And now, I really want to talk about his crazy trip to Canada. But before we get into his crazy trip to Canada, uh, I do want to mention one book that he wrote before that. This is actually what Henry says this is his favorite book of all time. And that would be Ubik. Oh, U-B-I-K, wow, yeah. 1960s sci-fi it novel. As Ubik, like ubiquitous. Oh, yeah. That's probably, that makes a lot of sense. It uh, is probably the book I will be reading yeah. uh, next as my uh, first uh PKD book to read after doing all of this research. I, I want to read that in, in a book we'll talk about later, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, of course. Uh, but uh, it's chosen by Time Magazine as one of the 100 greatest novels since 1923. It's about, it's hard to explain what it's about. I read the synopsis <laughs> and I still am unclear as completely as what it's about, other than it's about psychic powers. It's about people hired to block psychic powers it's 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 got double crosses it's got a strange product called ubik that will help those in half-life to stay alive it's which that sentence alone makes Mm -hmm. little sense to me it's uh it's it's about god again it's about god so and it has a cool little spray bottle on all the covers yeah it's a little spray bottle um it's this product that you need to keep you real uh, it's it sounds insane, and I definitely want to check it out. And, and it it's, still has that like oddly comic, almost like Terry Gilliam kind of feel to it. Yes, and and we're about to go through a series of massive changes in Philip K. Dick's life. But I do want to note that um, as much as he wrote some incredibly brilliant stuff and some mind bending stuff after all of these events that happened to him, uh, that are so life changing and and just he becomes essentially like. On another level, um, uh, he wrote some really brilliant stuff back in those days. Uh, it really reminds me of like you know Stephen King as well with the speed. Mm-hmm. We already mentioned Stephen King once uh, yeah, this prolific. episode. Prolific cocaine does a, a decent writer make it seems. Uh, not to say you should do cocaine, but I'm just throwing it out there. You know, it seems like these people um, uh, were living in a nightmare realm during all of it. But we're able to churn out a lot of shit. Uh, 68 pages of final copy a day, apparently. That's ridiculous. On a typewriter, too. Yes. That's Philip K. Dick's statement. He was doing churning out 68 pages 
of of final copy, as he put it, a day. Now, is the Canada story before or after he's in the Drifter House with this, all the... The Drifter House leads us to the Canada story. So, Philip K. Dick's third marriage, I think? I thought, yeah, it, this Anne is... Anne or Nancy? I, I, and Nancy, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 1971, and his marriage is falling apart. He gets heavy. He's already been doing it, but he's his deepest, darkest throes of amphetamine abuse at this point. Uh, he's letting he and at that point he lets other junkies move into his house. Please, please, junkies do heroin. These are speed freaks. Speed freaks. Sorry, he's letting all these filthy, nasty speed freaks. It's into known his house. in the in the uh, in the in the California parlance as a crash pad, <laughs> which is just a place, someone's home that you can just kind of hang out in and sleep in. Absolutely, and he essentially just. Said he had like a four bedroom house. His wife leaves him, and he's just needs to fill it with with something. Humanity he's just freaking out and yeah. and lonely as hell. So he just starts letting these people stay with him. He comes home one one time uh, during this time to find that his safe has been blown open, all of his money gone, and a lot of files and all of his papers and everything is just gone, told, taken and stolen. And he will not shut up about this. Yes, they he- they yes. Uh, there's a Rolling Stone article about the incident. He is like freaking out to all of his contacts in the literary world. Well, because it also felt more personal because it wasn't just money that was taken. It was a lot of very specific personal documents and things. And I think that really pushed him over the edge, especially when you're doing a bunch of cocaine and stuff. Of course, and you're already paranoid as fuck. And then when that actually happens to you, of course, you're not gonna be able to stop shutting up about it. You're, you're fucking to the gills on cocaine. Constantly formulating theories about whether it was like black nationalists that did it or if it was the government because they were terrified that in his previous sci-fi stories he had predicted the future so correctly. And the uh, police, you know who their prime suspect was? Philip K. Dick? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They really think Philip K. Dick did it. (laughs) They think that for a long time because he's crazy. So anyways, um, during this time, he's, he's like he has l- even less money than he had before. Um, he's got all these people living in his house. His place got broken into. He's losing his mind. And uh, he gets invited to deliver a speech at the Vancouver Science Fiction Convention. This is in February 1972. So, of course, what a great excuse to leave the country and get the hell away from all of his problems and all the crazy shit that's going on in his life. Um the Vancouver Science Fiction Convention is a fan-run fantasy gaming and sci-fi con. It's held annually, uh, and D- uh, Philip K. Dick is invited to speak at the second-ever uh, Vancouver Science Fiction Convention. He gives his speech that he tours around with, his, his uh, convention speech, which is uh, The Android and the Human, um, and it, there's, a lot of, there's a lot going on here, but... Um, uh, and I have some excerpts, and I think that this will kind of help us tap into some of the things we've been dancing around for a while. Uh, here's an excerpt here. Um, I'll, I'll give it a little intro here. In talking about the future or androids in relation to humans, he brings up an anecdote of that which androids would not do in his opinion. Uh, he's, he's talking about androids. He's talking about, like, how, you know, how, how they would be programmed in relationship to the human mind um, and and the fear that we have about that and the relationship to God and, of course, people playing God and all that sort of stuff. He tells the story of a girl who followed behind a truck that was carrying cases of Coca-Cola bottles. She parked behind it and filled up her truck with bottles so that her and her friends could drink free Coca-Cola bottles for the next couple weeks. And then she took the bottles to the grocery store and traded them in and got the, uh, got the money for the <laughs> bottle trade-in. And he says this about the incident. 
To that, I say this. God bless her. May she live forever. And the Coca-Cola company and phone company and all the rest of it with their passive infrared scanners and sniper scopes and such like. May they be gone long ago. Metal and stone and wire and thread did never live. But she and her friends, they are human future, are, are our little song. Who knows if the spirit of men travels up and the breath of beasts travels down under the earth, the Bible asks. Someday it, in a later revision, may wonder, who knows if the spirit of men travels up and the breath of androids travels down? Where do the souls of androids go after their death? But if they do not live, then they cannot die. And if they cannot die, then they will always be with us. Do they have souls at all? Or for that matter, do we? I think, as the Bible says, we all go to a common place, but it is not the grave. It is in the life beyond the world of the future. What a very important sounding pile of gibberish. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's interesting. I do. I think that's a fascinating speech about about the nature of God, especially as we look, especially as, you know, back then, androids and all that sort of such was, I think, a lot more... um, a lot more far into the future for those people. But today for us, we really have fucking sex robots and we, and Alexa's laughing at people and they don't understand why. And, you know, it's creepy shit's going on and we, you know, it, it's much more of a reality for sure. For sure. Um, so uh, I guess the basic idea, I was kind of trying to dig into this. In order to understand the difference between human and non-human and human beings, he argued that uh, much of human behavior was already non-human. The government now possessed the science of inauthentic human activity and that if totalitarianism is to be avoided, the ethics most important for the survival of the true human individual would be cheat, lie, evade, fake it, be elsewhere, forge documents, build improved electronic gadgets in your garage that will outwit the gadgets used by the authorities. He would have loved hackers today. Um, he, he, he's, yeah, I don't know. He's saying, he's, he's, he's saying a lot of, a lot of wild stuff right now. He's definitely like doing a bunch of blow and going out and sort of giving speeches and talking about these big profound concepts and ideas. And he's sort of all mixed up. He was definitely very upset that his wife, uh, was supposed to be with him at the con, uh, but she refused to go. Oh, also I'm not even, I'm, I feel like I'm remiss to mention this is during the fucking Vietnam war. This is during, you know, this is during a time he just dealt with the red scare that you mentioned uh, uh, years before. He's he's definitely very anti Nixon. This kind of comes up in his books later, anti Republican and everything. And I think he's focusing a lot on the concept of rebellion. Um, as a showing of of true humanity, especially because all of these things are happening at this point as uh, as well. People rising up, trying to fight back against the government, trying to stop wars, trying to say fuck you to the man. This is, I mean, this is definitely a huge reason of why uh, his work has survived and has more to offer than just clever twists where the main character goes like everyone was chimps in human costumes wow like it's you know it's more important than that uh you mentioned ubik which uh kind of talks about how like commercials and advertising kind of infect our lives every every chapter starts with an advertisement for ubik and it changes but the advertisement changes every single time to get more and more like fucked up and weird yeah um uh, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, is about like fame and our relationship yes. with uh, being known and notoriety. Uh, you know, 
uh, or even one of his early short stories involves like a bunch of like broke Mars colonists uh, inventing like little Barbie houses that mm. they then pop pills to live in the Barbie houses because their Mars colony is so shitty. Um, so like there's a lot of alienation that he was experienced because he was in such like a heightened state that, you know, the like, yes, basically the like the the level of of fear and anxiety that we feel now living in an actual fucked up world. Yeah. Uh, he was like. Keen on the, even the first glimmers of it was Somehow freaking him had out. a full on premonition of all of that. Uh, it, it's no, seems. he was just he was just strung out on speed and yeah. suffered from mental problems, so yes. he couldn't hack it. <laughs> and of course, he's so, like, oh, there's too many ads for Pepsi. Ah, we're being controlled. So he's in Canada. He gives this speech. He also immediately falls in love with this girl named Janice. This is literally in a day. Mm-hmm. Proclaims to all the people of Canada that he is now going to live in Canada. He's going to live in Vancouver. Everybody's super excited. Movie critic. Um, local movie critic Michael Walsh the man actually I mentioned earlier who was talking about um, kind of how da- difficult to have a conversation with him he invites Philip K. Dick to stay in his home he kicks him out two weeks later due to his erratic behavior <laughs> surprise surprise and then uh, Janice breaks it off with him shortly after surprise surprise so at this point on March 23rd 1972 hitting um, I uh, the lowest point in his life probably he tries to kill himself by ingesting 700 milligrams of potassium bromide, which is a sedative. Are you sure that's not one of the ingredients in Mountain Dew we discussed in a previous episode? <laughs> I, I have to go back and check. I would not be shocked, actually, if it's both the same. Uh, he ends up changing his mind. He phones the, uh, or calls, rather. I'm sure, I guess I was reading a, Brit- <laughs> taking from a British article about this. Uh, the BC Crisis Center for Help. He winds up in a drug and re- uh, alcohol rehabilitation center, which is called X Calais, mm-hmm. uh, which will actually be novelized later on in a book you may have heard of called A Scanner Darkly. He claims that's the first uh, novel he ever wrote, Not on Speed. Ah, interesting. And it's apparently a phenomenal work. Um, the Linklater movie does a... Re- a mm-hmm. the Linklater that might mo- be one of the more proper adaptations of it. It absolutely work. It does a very good job. Um, and it actually kind of works because... The book itself is set in the far off year of 1994. And if there's like someone that captures the idea of yes. 90s degenerates as good as Richard Linklater, yes. like it's actually pretty, it fits pretty nicely. It's also about uh, a group of speed freaks living in a house mm-hmm. uh, together. So that was also pulled from his time in California before he went to It also, uh, oh Canada. God, it hits on so many. Uh, uh, Philip K. Dick uses a lot of archetypes a lot and- uh, like if, even if you think about Blade Runner, if you think about a bunch of other things, there's the uh, manic uh, engineer or scientist who has to explain everything to the main character, uh, who is usually an everyman, but also like a cop who has like a family life that like something has gone wrong in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like a flighty hippy dippy chick who's like who's seeming like uh, uh, kindness and like kind of non-threatening demeanor belies like a horrible secret. Ah, yes. He he gets pulled out. He gets pulled out of his depression and his drug addiction in the ex Calais uh, rehabilitation center, which is uh, referred to as New Path in A Scanner Darkly. He ends up flying back to California in late April, um, and then this crazy shit happens. Are you ready? Are you is ready this, for this? Uh, is this the is this the story on February twentieth? Pink laser story. Oh yeah, baby. This I feel like the reason. After this happens, his life kind of like completely shifts. This is when Wizard and the Bruiser meets last podcast on the left. 
Yeah, but like, <laughs> so this happens to him. He it changes his life completely. Uh, everything shifts gear to be pretty much just about this. Blade Runner finally gets made. He gets paid, and then like, so at the exact moment that people were the most interested in him, he was blasting out all this material about this. On February twentieth, nineteen seventy four. Philip K. Dick, recovering from the effects of sodium pentothal, which was given to him for the extraction of a wisdom tooth. Usually I just say, give me the gas, but no, sometimes (laughs) they put you full of truth serum. Give you you that thaw thaw, (laughs) as I used to call it in first grade. Hey, what's that thing you give to Soviet spies when they're trying to bite down on the cyanide pills? (laughs) Yeah, 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 give me that dentist. Uh, so he re- he receives a delivery of Darvon, which is to help him deal with coming down from this um, sodium pentothal, from, in quotes, remember it, the dark-haired girl. Do you know why the dark-haired girl brought him uh, his pills? I, it, it was it was why? I thought it was... Because he had refused to leave his house for several months. Ah, <laughs> that would make sense. He was uh, he was struck by this girl's beauty and by her golden necklace, a fish-shaped design. It's the Jesus the Je- Ichthys, as it is known as. It is the sign used by the early Christians, she said, and then she left. The he Jesus call- fish Ichthys thing was kind of like a trendy thing at the time. It's like it kind of reached a it's, – it's almost like the – it was two sets of footprints like uh, mm-hmm. poster. Mm-hmm. That like – it was kind of this American thing that the Ichthys was this – cool sign that was supposedly used by early Christians to point to where gatherings were. It was called, he referred to it as the vesicle Pisces, which is based on the confusion of two different symbols, the ichthys, as you mentioned, and the vesica vesica Pisces, which is the intersection of two uh, discs. I was about to say intersection of two dicks. Mm. All right. But I didn't say it until just I mean, it did intersect a dick. Yes. Uh, with the same radius, it means bladder of a fish. So it's interesting because uh, the, the, with the Jesus fish, it resembles the conjoined dual air bladders found in most fish. It looks like a fucking Venn diagram, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what he saw as the sun glinted off the gold pendant, uh, the reflection caused the generation of a pink beam of light that mesmerized him. He came to believe that the beam imparted wisdom and clairvoyance and also believed it to be intelligent. And he was revisited by the beam multiple times. At one point, the beam did tell him, as he puts it, that his infant son was ill. And uh, they, they'd done all the tests on him before on, this, on, the, on the infant child. And everything seemed fine. But he refused to, uh, to, to believe that after getting this um, vision or getting told by this spirit that uh, the son was not. He rushes the son to the hospital. The son has some kind of bizarre like um, uh, hemorrhage or something. In it's his- a hemorrhoid. Uh, he has a hemorrhoid. It's a very specific kind of hemorrhoid. I don't. It's not. It's not all funny butt stuff. Sometimes <laughs> shit can get serious. <laughs> and uh, essentially, the the child uh, the child's life is saved. Thus, further convincing Philip K. Dick that uh, this stuff is super legit. He also starts experiencing strange hallucinations. He refers to this time as two three seventy four, which is shorthand for February March nineteen seventy four, because that was the time period in which he was experiencing this stuff. He says, I experienced I experienced an invasion of my mind by transcendentally rational mind, as if I had been insane all my life, and suddenly I had become sane.
insane. So this is him being sane, Jake. Mm-hmm. He, uh, besides the pink beam, he starts seeing geometric patterns and brief pictures of Jesus in ancient Rome. The geometric patterns actually very similar to what people describe when they talk about um, going on uh, uh, deep uh, ayahuasca trips. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sort of that that fractal. Oh, pattern. I saw that shit when I was real into salvia in high school. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Uh, he he claimed he began to live two parallel lives. One was as himself. One was as Thomas, a Christian persecuted by Russian by Roman in the first century uh, CE. He referred to the uh, transcendentally rational mind, uh, the, the essentially the pink, pink beam, as zebra, god, and valis, which we mentioned before. Valis stands for vast active living intelligence system. At one point, he explained that it was in fact that we are all living in ancient Christian times in the time of Jesus and that the modern world is an illusion being like cast on us to like divert us from his wisdom Mm -hmm. um he thinks it's a he thinks it's a divine entity that took over him to manage his affairs and tell him things that would happen in the near future uh he he says that it also liked to play games and showed him a vision of paradise so it's like a playful sort of um and uh intelligence beam (laughs) Uh, and uh, that's where he starts to talk about this irrational world evolving into a rational paradise the things I was kind of bringing up earlier this is when this starts to hit home more for him Um, there was uh, another moment um, uh, also apparently uh, Philip K. Dick's fourth wife by this point does he have a fourth wife? He has. He made it to five before it all went bad. Before he <laughs> before he kicked it. Well, well, one of his wives. Uh, they. She was transcribing the sounds that she heard him speak one one day or evening, and discovered that he was actually speaking uh, Koine Greek, which is a common Greek dialect. Uh, during the Hellenistic years, um, which of course he had never studied, uh, Koine Greek was originally used to write the New Testament. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're starting and to go real And this is definitely deep. real stuff that's really happening and not just stuff he's saying to other people and exactly. kind of the details kind of shift depending on when he's talking to them. Right. Not none of that. Now, no, this is definitely real. Now, now we have, now we go back to covering some of the novels here. You mentioned Flow My Tears, the policeman said fantastic where I really want to read this. So this is his first book after the years of silence that were his recovery and all of that. This was a, this was a big deal. Um, he he uh it's you know it's following a, a genetically enhanced pop singer and television star wakes up in a world where his identity has been erased uh yada 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 there's no way i'm going to be able to summarize it well in this in this conversation but what's uh, one of the important things about i can tell it, you what the twist is was don't tell me yeah i'm going to tell you all right uh he tripped so hard that he uh faced into a dement into a parallel reality where he didn't exist there you go and then when he was given the antidote or like like a, a different like when he was Basically, the drug enforcement agency is like, ah, shit, we got another one of these guys, and they, like, zapped him back. (laughs) (laughs) So he, in this book, he recounts, uh, uh, he writes about an incident near the end of the book um, that involves, um, like, a guy getting gas and running into um, this uh, black man that they end up sort of hitting it off, and then he... Uh, a man dressed in black dressed in black oh i thought it was a black man no 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 he so this is this is the mind of a fucking paranoic of a schizophrenic of a manic is 
that like it's so in the I'm, so in the book he's like oh it's funny i wrote about a guy who was helped by a man dressed in black mm. and then later i helped a black man connection like yes. no it's fucking life that's it, yeah I mean, it happened it happened in real life is this incident at this gas station but then he's describing this moment to an episcopalian priest and the priest notes that it's very similar to a scene in the book of uh books of acts in the bible and then of course a similar thing happens to him in real life all these connections he's starting to make all of this stuff um and uh this is why he feels that at one point he was taken over uh by the spirit of the prophet elijah the man's like at this point in his life it's just the fucking pepe sylvia ran from it's always sunny in philadelphia here's a quote from philip k dick describing flow my tears the policeman said just to give you an idea deciphered my novel tells quite a different story than the surface story the real story is simply this the return of christ now king rather than suffering servant Judge rather than victim of unfair judgment. Everything is reversed. The core message of my novel, without my knowing it, was a warning to the powerful. You will shortly be judged and condemned. So that's kind of where he's at. Another important work, Radio Free Albemuth, is uh, uh, I noted this one because this is sort of, um, this was originally titled Valis System A. This is his first attempt at fictionalizing the Valis mm-hmm. stuff. That's going on with him. It was written in 1976. Um, It's about an evil president taking over the U.S. uh, And there's an alien-led revolt. And they're communicating to the humans through this satellite and this and this uh, the pink beam, essentially. Um, He Philip K. Dick writes himself into the book, which is another thing that's in Valis as well. Um, and he's in the book like three times in Valis. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's it's. Is also the first time he starts talking about his sort of hatred for Nixon. Um, we already mentioned Scanner Darkly, so uh, um, the only thing I will say about that is his wife Tessa Dick. Mm-hmm. Which one is Tessa? Um, apparently, she said that that uh, a Scanner Darkly was incredibly torturous for him to write because it took him back to that time before he uh, went to Canada, and so she would find him. Um, uh, she once stated that she often found her husband weeping as the sun rose after a night-long writing session working on Scanner Darkly. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was it was sort of originally more autobiographical. And then, again, this is kind of a, tes- uh, a testament towards, you know, or, or, or a sign of what he was dealing with. They were like, all right, well, let's play more. Let's play up that Scanner suit more. And let's mm-hmm. play up these sci-fi elements more to make it more of a sci-fi book. Like, he could never they, he could never just write, like, a, a, wor- a non-sci-fi work, mm-hmm. uh, it seems. He, he was never quite able to do it. So he's always sort of science fictionalizing these these autobiographical things that are happening in his life, and that's what brings us to Vallis. Vallis, published in 1981, is the first of his incomplete Vallis trilogy. There's also a Divine Invasion is the second, and the planned third one was The Owl in Daylight. It is uh, uh, it is the kind of like the the it's kind of the culmination of what he was working on with Albemuth. <laughs> which is a crazy name. I think it's it's Albemuth, by the way, is uh, something like behemoth. It comes from that uh, that word, that some phrase involving that. And it, it, it's a story about a guy. You may have heard of him. Horse lover fat. He believes his visions expose hidden facts about the reality of life on Earth, and a group of others join him in researching these matters. Uh and there's a secondary narrator named Philip Dick mm-hmm. who constantly makes fun of horse lover fat and assure and, you know, kind of belittles him and tells him that his theories and things he's discovering aren't as mystical as he wants, as he mm. believes him to be. Uh, 
Funny story. Do you know uh, that the word uh, horse lover is kind of uh, just a English translation of the Greek name Philippus? Hmm. Yeah, that's weird. That is weird. You know, like uh, like uh, like a uh, like a Philly, like you know the fi- it's it's the Greek root for horse. Um, oh wait, now that I think about it, isn't dich the German word for fat? <laughs> Interesting. So weird, Philippus dich. Huh. <laughs> Weird. I wonder who that's supposed to be. Well, that I'm glad you told me this because <laughs> horse lover fat. At least that gives that's the dumbest name for a protagonist <laughs> I've ever seen. So your explanation. Phil K. Dick has a lot of dumb names in his yeah, books. Yeah, right. What is that? Because he's being playful. He's being <laughs> like because it's it's almost him saying it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he. So this protagonist uh, believes his visions expose hidden facts about the reality of life on Earth, and a group of others join him in researching these matters. They're looking for the next uh, Messiah. Um, uh, AKA an in- the next incarnation of holy wisdom. Uh, there's so many references in this book. It's, it's makes my head spin. The f- like, they uh, go uh, religious references, Valentinian Gnosticism, the Rose cross brotherhood, Zoroastrianism and Buddhism, along with the Bible, of course, then there's Greek philosophers, too many to name. And then also psychologists like Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, but then also nods to modern culture. Great. The grateful dead, Frank Zappa, Linda Ronstadt, these are all people that are um, mentioned. Uh, in Vallis, he talks about the fucking fish necklace and the laser beams. Mm-hmm. Like he's getting into it. Yes. Uh, one of the for- one of the forms of his like holy wisdom god is basically a fictionalized version of his dead twin sister. Mm-hmm. Like this is just him exploding. Like the corkboard and the strings and the thumbtacks are connecting in a million different ways. Even though he did not finish uh, this series, uh, don't worry, he did take. Thousands of pages of notes. Yes, thousands. The ex. Are you talking about the exegesis? Exegesis. Exegesis of Philip K. Dick. Um, the, they they cut it down in the published version to just 944 pages. Yes, Don't worry. But apparently, it's um, approximately 8,000 pages of notes. Um, which is fucking bananas. Um, it is the nonfiction selections from Philip K. Dick's uh, journals. Uh, there's tons of stuff like that. If you want to look, there's letters, there's journals, there's so much stuff. There's the story of his of one of his ex-wives talking about how he uh, called her to ask for permission to change the dedication of Man in the High Castle from her uh, to his current wife. <laughs> so so he he's okay. This is like an excerpt. I, I pulled for a short time. As hard as this is to believe or explain, I saw fading into view the black prison-like contours of hateful Rome, but of much more importance. I remember Jesus, who had just recently been with us and had gone temporarily away and would very soon return. My emotion was one of joy. We were secretly uh, preparing to welcome him back. It would not be long, and the Romans did not know. They thought he was dead, forever dead. That was our great secret, our joyous knowledge. Despite all appearances, Christ was going to return, and our delight and anticipation were boundless. Um, actually, in his own, we have we have a little clip here. So by this time, he was like going full guru. He yes. de- he wanted people to know about this new way of being, this philosophy, and any place that would let him talk about this stuff, he would. This is him at the Mets science fiction convention in Paris. Again, like I mentioned, uh, France really dug his shit. We are living in a computer programmed reality and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed. 
Very and Matrix. Yeah. Some Very alteration simul in simulacra. our So he's talking about computer simulacra. And like an hour later, he's still going to be talking and he's going to bring in the Jesus lasers. Perhaps in precisely the same like way, he has a hearing theory the of same everything. words, saying the same words, like I Jack submit Nicholson that these the impressions Shining. are valid and significant. And I will even say this, such an impression is a clue that at some past time point, a variable was changed, reprogrammed as it were. That's literally that their, the matrix explanation of deja vu. Uh, find the other clip, I think. Mm -hmm. um, He's just like, out these dreams he's still like, this is novel, a two, three hour story to name two in which this prior dreams. ugly present obtained most clearly. I cite the man in the high castle and my 1974 novel about the U.S. as a police state called Flow My Tears, the policeman said. I'm going to be very All these French people are you. bored out of their minds. I wrote both novels based on fragmentary residual memories of such a horrid slave state world. People claim to remember past lives. I claim to remember a different, very different present life. Yeah, so it's just it's it's you know he he's he's spreading the 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 news. He's what telling everybody the good news. The now is the past, but the future is also now. Only through the satellite of perhaps an alien greater intelligence do we understand that we are but one aspect of a myriad of shapes. Like it's just it keeps going. And I'll tell you what, don't worry. Uh, if you, if you want more on the exegesis of Philip K. Dick and Vallis, I do believe Henry will be um, returning to this so at some point he's saying this year to cover the fuck out of it and I'll and, be and only, behind his shoulder screaming about how it's all bullshit <laughs> and only the best way Henry could you know so on February 17th, 1982, after an interview, uh, Philip K. Dick has con uh, contacted his therapist about failing eyesight. He's, availed to, uh, he's advised to go to the hospital immediately, but he does not do so. He's found unconscious on the floor of his home. Uh, the next day, he suffered from a stroke. He suffers another stroke about a week later, which leads to brain death. And they pulled him from life support about five days after that. And um, uh, so he did pass away then uh, before I was even born. And uh, his ashes were buried next to his sister, Jane. Which meant that the grave was waiting for him his entire life. Yep. Which is fucked up. So that's our coverage on Philip K. Dick. What? Uh, let's, let's, let's do a lab. Let's do a let's 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 fi figure this out. OK. Um, so why does why is Philip K. Dick uh, kind of now? this grand figure when he was ignored his entire life, even during t periods of time where science fiction writers were elevated? It's a good question, Jake, and one that I've been searching for, and maybe you could answer for me. Well, part of it is that Blade Runner and Total Blade Recall— Blade Runner got way cool to our yeah. specific generation. Blade Runner was a slow burn in the VHS era. If VHS didn't exist, who knows if Philip K. Dick would still be in our hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. uh, it would just be another weird story title when you were watching Total Recall. And the fact is that all of his, a good twist really can help a movie. Mm -hmm. Like science fiction, action, and like just a little bit of a bend, a little bit of a twist makes it stick. And Philip K. Dick was spent his entire life thinking about all the ways that reality can fall away and all the ways we're deceived and all the ways that like a life can change. And he had a he had a good good eye for like the uneasiness I think we all feel 
being alive in this reality that doesn't quite make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Also, the fact that he was married a bajillion times means that the rights to his stories were in limbo for so long that every single thing you had to get made an option was a complete nightmare until his kids consolidated everything into a single uh, entity. And um, his his one of his daughters, uh, Issa Dick something, uh, was like basically has become a Hollywood powerhouse optioning and making deals and producing uh, stories based on his works. And it's just, it's just, so it's this wealth of stuff. He was ahead of the curve. This, the anxieties he talks about in his, in his old sci-fi works are stuff that still reverberates today. Um, I actually watched some of the Amazon uh uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Uh-huh. In the opening sequence, like it ends on like a weird CGI like version of his face plastered onto an android. Oh it's wow! Ca- like he's still alive now. He's still mm. like a figure. Yeah. Um, the Commuter is a great episode. I suggest you watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it's it's about a guy, who, this hapless guy who's just living a humdrum life, and his whole life gets twisted. Like you know, the the scaffolding falls away, and he realizes that he what he thought was real wasn't. It's it's all like it's everybody feels this way. Yeah. Fuck the Jesus laser. It's it's <laughs> just the fact is, is that he died screaming about Jesus lasers and so that's like the most volume of stuff we you can learn about him. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now I think that covers our finishes our coverage on Philip K Dick. I'm going to try to learn how to speak again. I'll I'll maybe figure it out in the next week or so. Um Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can check out our Patreon on uh, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, follow me on Twitch at Holdnator's Ho. Jake? No, oh, you can follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. Oh, shit. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.